3: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, January 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show...
2: But it's, uh, it's unfortunate that we come to this process. Uh, it's sort of reflective of the times we're in, I'm afraid.
3: The House of Representatives send the articles of impeachment to the Senate for action. We talk exclusively with former Majority Leader Trent Lott about the trial process. Then, local television networks are changing frequencies. We talk to the FCC about how to stay up to date with the changes. Plus, in our book club, Brooks Eason's Fortunate Son, the story of baby boy Francis. This is Mississippi Edition. The articles of impeachment advanced to the Senate today following a formal vote in the House Wednesday. This is the first impeachment trial the Senate will judge since the 1999 hearing against President Bill Clinton. Former Mississippi Senator Trent Lott served as Senate Majority Leader during the Clinton impeachment. In part one of our two-part conversation, the Senator joins MPB's Michael Gidry to reflect on his experiences during the trial process. It was-
2: Saturday, when the House of Representatives voted for the Articles of Impeachment on Clinton, and I was at uh, my home in Pascagoula thinking, oh my goodness, well, now we've got to deal with this. On Sunday, I called my friend and the Democratic leader at the time, Tom Daschle of South Dakota, and I said, "Uh, Tom, whether we like it or not, uh, this thing is in our lap, and we're going to have to find a way to get it done in a sensible, civil, uh, you know, and appropriate manner, because the Constitution requires that the Senate has to act. And we talked about how to proceed, and we actually got a couple of our trusted uh, friends in the Senate and drafted a, a proceeding that we could have done in about two weeks. But when I presented it in December to the Republican conference, they were not satisfied with it. They said, you're, uh, you're just trying to short-circuit this. We need a full process to get uh, this to the right conclusion, and they wouldn't agree to do it. So I had to go back to the Democrats and say, well, we're going to have to think of something else." Uh, it was another week or so before we finally got together and uh, came up uh with a conclusion of how to proceed in terms of the rules that you would need to proceed with and It passed a hundred to zero. every senator voted for the rules because they thought they were fair. The other thing was Clinton had already been reelected and so it wasn 't a question of how it might be determined by an election or how it would be affected by an election in this case. You got a president that has been impeached by the House of Representatives who is also going to be up for re election during the year that the Senate would proceed. But it's uh, it's unfortunate that we come to this process. Uh, it's sort of reflective of the times we're in, I'm afraid.
1: You mentioned that in President Clinton's case, he had been re elected. Members of Congress, both in the House and the Senate, didn't have to really weigh what the electorate thinks. Did that take some of the weight off of? what you and, and Senator Daschle were trying to do as far as determining what the trial would look like?
2: Yeah, perhaps so. Uh, you know, I uh, I have studied impeachment a lot because I had to as majority leader, but and I've done a lot of uh, thinking about it and reading back on it uh, recently. I was on the Judiciary Committee in the House in 1973-74 when we had the Nixon impeachment proceedings. So I was a part of that process, which uh, of course ended when he resigned. But also have uh, read the, the history of the impeachment proceedings of Andrew Johnson. Uh, some interesting things there. He was impeached by the House, tried by the Senate, and was not removed by one vote. The winning argument, it appears, was that it was only seven months till the next election where a president would be determined, and uh, the argument was let the people decide. And that argument might be made this uh, coming year. Uh, you know, President Trump will be up in November. Uh, it's very hard to remove a president with six seven votes. Let the people decide. But uh, in our case, I knew the votes weren't there. So the question is then, how do you comply with the constitutional requirements and do it in a way that's thorough, and get to a conclusion where the people feel like you you did the job as best you could, which is a very difficult difficult proceeding, and then be able to go back to work on the people's business. And uh, I do think we did that with the Clinton trial, and we had the vote on the two articles of impeachment to on a Friday. Um, and, of course, the votes weren't there. But the next week, on Thursday, I received a call from President Clinton, and he wanted to talk to me about a bill. He was interested in us uh, saying if we could move. It was sort of an insignificant bill, and I don't even remember what it was. But it was interesting to me that he called. We talked about a piece of legislation. He never mentioned that we just had impeachment trial, and I had voted for the articles of impeachment to remove him. And we went on with the business of the people. And I hope that that would be something that could happen this coming year.
1: As a majority leader, what are some of the things that you think need to happen in that Senate trial or that some things that maybe the American public deserves to know? Talk us through some of that.
2: Well, it is uh, very tedious and, and pretty complicated in many respects. But to start at the beginning, of course, the presiding officer as determined by the Founding Fathers is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So one of the things that I had to do was to meet with uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist and go over with him uh, what the rules would be, what his role would be, as I understood it. And, of course, he had a a right to know what that role was in his own opinion. One interesting tidbit is that if there is a dead tie on something other than the articles of impeachment, uh, unlike all other occasions when the vice president breaks a tie, the chief justice would have to do that. But you, uh, you have to meet and uh, make decisions like, okay, uh, how long do you think this may take? Uh, what other witnesses might you require, if any? Uh, and when do you do that? Now, the way we did it, uh, we adopted the rules to proceed uh, to have the managers from the House come over and present the case, have the president's people present their case, and then uh, ask questions, and then decide, do you, why do you want to uh, proceed? Do you want to have witnesses? Uh, That's a very difficult thing. Some people wanted uh, to bring President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and others into the well of the Senate and make them testify publicly. I thought that would be uh, demeaning to the Senate itself. So what we did work out, we agreed that we would have the depositions taken of, of three witnesses, and that was videotaped and transcribed so senators could review it and read it. So you have to make those decisions. You could have a vote to just right up front to dismiss the article. And Senator Bob Byrd of West Virginia did force that vote and the Clinton proceedings. But we, I think, had 53 senators that said, no, 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 we're not going to just dismiss it. We've got to go through the proper process here.
1: Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader Schumer have expressed a desire to have witness testimony. If you were majority leader in a time like this, would you want witness testimony? Um, Not necessarily the president, but witness testimony from some of the first-hand accounts that are related to this, these specific articles of impeachment?
2: Well, uh, first of all, I think I should emphasize that I'm not the majority leader now, but this is a situation where you have a clash of a lot of constitutional requirements. For instance, the President of the United States has uh, a constitutional right of executive privilege. He, The closest people to him, like his lawyer, the head of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, that is covered by executive privilege. So, it gets to be very complicated, where you've got the constitutional requirement to make sure you have a full and fair impeachment trial process, but then you also have the right of executive privilege, and you have to find a way to work uh, through that. But it's hard to say, uh, you know, exactly what I would do uh, under these circumstances because they are, you know, very different from the
1: ones we were dealing with with Clinton. You mentioned how, back in 1999, when the trial was done and the Senate failed to remove President Clinton, that you received that call, and the idea was like, this is past us, let's move forward and, and do the business of the people, and you, you re- reflected that you were able to do so. Do you fear uh, that because this is an election year and because of the polarization we're seeing, a vindictive atmosphere will, will take hold and you'll we'll see even more gridlock after this trial is over?
2: Well, you could. Uh, but after this trial is over, you're going to have an election. Maybe, you know, the people will will make changes in in the election. Uh, maybe they'll uh, change both the House and Senate in some way or another. And um, I, I worry that when I look at the the field of who's running, uh, who's who's going to be the candidate that could actually get us to uh, work together more. And and we all we we underestimate. Uh, what's going on in international trade policy? We underestimate the threats that exist around the world. Uh, you know, and you just name name the place, and it, it's a hot spot. Uh, so we better be careful who we put in charge because they could be faced with very tough decisions very quickly. And again, I'm I'm, uh, I'm not trying to make that sound conservative, liberal, Democrat, or Republican, but it just uh, we need to all think carefully about what we want for our country uh, in the future.
3: Trent Lott, a Republican, represented Mississippi in the U.S. Senate from 1989 to 2007. Coming up, local television networks are changing frequencies. We talked to the FCC about how to stay up to date with the change. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: Ready for a new year? This season of Fit to Eat, we'll be cooking up lots of healthy and delicious dishes to get you started out on the right foot. We'll travel to farms all across the state and have some great conversations with a new guest every episode. Registered dietitian Rebecca Turner is back with kitchen hacks and recipe ideas that you've got to try for yourself. It's going to be
4: a great year, so tune in. Join Chef Rob Stinson on the new season of Fit to Eat, premiering January 18th on MPB-TV.
3: Viewers who watch over-the-air television with an antenna may need to rescan their television sets to continue to receive local TV channels that change their frequencies. Some stations nationwide are changing frequencies to help open up airwaves for new high-speed wireless service. Jean Cadu is chair of the Federal Communications Commission's Incentive Auction Task Force. She tells us the frequency changes are part of an effort to use the nation's airwaves efficiently.
0: One of the things we do here at the FCC is we make sure that we use the nation's airwaves as efficiently as we can for American consumers and businesses. And we identified TV broadcast spectrum as an area that if we, we move some stations around, we could free up space for important new wireless services, faster and faster high-speed 5G services and other wireless capacity that consumers are demanding more and more of. Uh, so that's why we're asking TV stations to change their frequencies.
3: Is the FCC ordering this? Is it voluntary on behalf of the stations?
0: No, it's something that we're, we're requiring them to do in order to, uh, to, to use the, the airwaves more efficiently. What does it mean for consumers? For consumers, the channels that they see will not change. Uh, they 'll be able to continue to get the same channels that they 're used to seeing on their over the air TV now we 're talking about TV viewers who watch their TVs using an antenna either on their roof or in their uh, indoors uh, and not viewers who watch with cable or satellite. Those guys will take care of it for their own subscribers, but viewers who watch with an antenna will simply need to rescan their TV so that the TV will know to find the channel at its new place in the airwaves you know everyone had to scan their tv when they set it up the first time with their antenna because tvs aren't shipped from the factory with uh, local mississippi stations pre-programmed into them and so this is just something that they have to do again to make sure that they continue to receive all of their local channels
3: are there multiple stations in mississippi that will be doing this
0: Yes, there's, there are stations uh, in a couple of different places in the state. Uh, two stations in Meridian are making the switch, uh, as well as a couple in the Columbus area and the Jackson area.
3: If someone doesn't rescan their TV, they're going to get a lot of snow? They won't get any channels at all?
0: Yeah, they'll probably, uh, once the change happens to a particular station that they're used to seeing, uh, when they tune to that station the next time, they'll get one of those snow or blue screens that'll say, Channel not available. Uh, it'll probably tell them to rescan their TV if the, if the TV is uh, a newer generation TV. But, but basically, they'll get one of those blue screens or, or snow screens and need to rescan.
3: Is this all happening at the same time?
0: No, we're doing this in again. It's a matter of physics. We're doing it in phases. We've assigned each uh, TV station that's moving to a particular phase out of one of 10. Um, There's a Meridian station. We're currently in phase seven, and there's a Meridian station that's affected, which is the PBS Channel 14 in Meridian, which is moving, uh, uh, either has has moved recently or will be moving. So viewers need to be on the lookout. And if they tune to that channel and uh, see a blue screen, they should know that they should be rescanning.
3: If someone doesn't know how to rescan, if they don't have a newer TV, they can push a button. What do they do?
0: Uh, Basically, um, uh, they need to use their remote control and go to the menu or the setup. Uh, button and go through the the process of essentially going to where they have a, a channel scan or an antenna scan. But we do have some resources in case a viewer uh, f- has has forgotten how they did it when they set up their TV and hasn't or hasn't done it in a while. Uh, we have information on our FCC website, which is wwwfccgovernor rescan has information about why we're doing it, what's happening, and uh, how, to, how to do the, the rescan. And we also have, for viewers who need a little extra help in walking through it, we have a call center, a dedicated call center that we've set up that's available seven days a week from uh, 8 a.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern time. So if a viewer is watching at a program at night or a channel at night that they're not finding or, or on the weekend, uh, that center is available in English and Spanish at 1888 call FCC which is 1888 225 5322.
3: You're speaking with us about it so you're reaching our listeners. What else are you doing to reach cuz I'm sure you have a lot of people that need to hear your message?
0: We're also doing a lot of outreach on um, uh, online via social media and uh, Google Search and other things for, for help information. We are working with print media to be able to uh, to get the word out through print media. Uh, so we're doing a lot of different things to make sure that we we reach as many viewers as we can. We also have required uh, the stations to sub, uh, send out notice um, uh, via their on, on screen, on public service announcements and screen crawls at least 30 days in advance of making the change. And the stations view it as very, very important that their viewers continue to find them for obvious reasons. Uh, so they're uh, actually pr- usually going above and beyond our minimum rules. What is your website again? The website is www.fcc.gov slash TV Rescan. Cadu
3: is the chair of the FCC Incentive Auction Task Force. Gene, thank you so much for all the good information. Thank you, and thank you for helping to get the word out to your listeners. Changes will go into effect at various times starting this month. Coming up in our book club, Fortunate Son, the story of baby boy Francis. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast autocorrect we help steer you in the right direction with your car problems find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org
3: this is mpb think radio mississippi is our mission is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Brooks Eason was born in June of 1957 in New Orleans. He didn't know who his mother was until decades later, and the reason he found out about her at all was because of a nationwide search for him. Today in our book club, Brooks Eason tells us about his familial journey in Fortunate Son, the story of baby boy Francis.
4: Her name was Julie Francis. She was a um, rich A beautiful socialite from Tulsa. She got pregnant during the fall semester of uh, her freshman year of college at Washington University in St. Louis, and then got sent to New Orleans where I was born. She died long before I found out she was my mother. She had a short, tragic life. She was a severe alcoholic, married twice, divorced twice, died of cirrhosis when she was 47 years old. I was her only child. A lot of the people that I talked to in researching for the book, including her little brother, Didn't know I existed until after she died.
3: How did they find out?
4: Her will, that was discovered after she died, said that she had given birth to a baby boy out of wedlock in New Orleans in July of 1957. And so when they found the will, that's when they learned that she'd had a child. Did she give you up for adoption immediately? I don't know. Uh, She signed the papers relinquishing legal rights to me when I was eight days old. I don't know if she held me or um, fed me or anything before that. I found this fascinating Facebook page for alums from the uh, Homefront Wed Mothers in New Orleans where I was born, alums, mothers, and children. And reading the stories on there was just fascinating. And I don't really know Julie's story, but reading about these other women, most of them were allowed— a few minutes with their babies. Uh, I don't know whether that was a wise policy or not, to give them any time versus no time. But uh, another fasc- fascinating thing that I read was, you know, typically um, the girls, and most of them were really too young to be women, uh would go back home shortly after their babies were born and then the babies would remain there until they were placed for adoption. I was two and a half months old when my parents drove to New Orleans and got me. A lot of the pregnant girls worked in the nursery so they took care of the other girls babies before they had their own and then when they had their own they were only given a few minutes with them.
3: How did your parents adopt you?
4: Did they choose you? They wanted a boy. They had adopted my sister, also from Methodist Home Hospital, two years earlier. How was your childhood? It was wonderful, idyllic. We didn't have a lot of money, but I certainly never worried about having food on the table. I told friends I grew up in a good place at a good time, in Tupelo. Always knew I was adopted, never would have looked for my birth mother. I sort of thought that would be ungrateful, maybe. I had wonderful, wonderful parents, and I thought if I go on some quest to find my biological mother or my biological parents, that might suggest to them that something was missing and nothing was missing, and so um, so I never did that and never would have. My father died in 2013, so he was still alive when I found out that Julie was my birth mother. He got the call, in fact, when they were looking for me. There was litigation in Oklahoma and Louisiana in an effort to figure out who baby boy Francis was. Uh, The reason there was litigation is because I was a potential heir to Julie's grandfather's fortune, and he was um, very rich. I'm not sure exactly how rich because I wound up not getting any of the money, but uh, (laughs) that was the reason that some lawyers embarked on an effort to find me. And uh, the Louisiana Supreme Court ordered the adoption file to be released, and they had to go through the adoption files one at a time because they were, of course, not on the computer from 1957, and they were maintained in the name of the adoptive parents, and nobody knew who the adoptive parents were. So they went through them one at a time, and they found the the file that was labeled Paul and Margaret Eason and looked in there, and there were two birth certificates, both for me, but one as Scott Francis, my initial name, which I didn't know until I was nearly 50, and then the replacement birth certificate as Paul Brooks Eason. Then the lawyers who were doing this called my daddy, who lived in the same house in Tupelo that they took me home to nearly 50 years earlier, and uh, left him a message that they were conducting a nationwide search for Paul Eason, age 46, and my name is Paul Brooks Eason, and I was almost 47, And so he called me, and I called him back, and I learned the whole story over the course of the next few weeks.
3: And that in itself had to be stunning, but also to find out that you might inherit a lot of money and become a very rich man had to be stunning as well.
4: Yeah, and I was okay with that, too, and I I would have been perfectly pleased with that.